I'm so lucky because I'm sitting here today with three very special men, three Concorde pilots, and we're just going to discuss a little bit about this remarkable plane and how it really was such an elegant part of British heritage for so many years. Steve, can I pass over to you to introduce yourself? Uh, well, I'm Steve Bohill-Smith and uh, I lived right next to Heathrow Airport and I was wanting to always be uh, in aviation and become a pilot. I always used to sit in my classroom at the school overlooking the runways and my maths teacher said, stand up boy. He uh, read out the maths exam results and he missed me out. He missed me out. <laughs> And uh, I thought, oh, I haven't passed. And then he said, you've passed. You've got a grade A. I can't understand you. You sit, <laughs> you sit there pretending to land your pencil on your desk all the time. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, it was fantastic that I had the opportunity to, to fly it. Right place, the right time. Terence Henderson, hello. I uh, also wanted to fly right from the beginning. My father and uh, one of my uncles were both pilots in World War II. And in fact, when I later married, I found out that my father-in-law and my stepfather-in-law both also flew in World War II. All four survived, um, but I'd always wanted to fly. The RAF offered me a role at Cranwell, but I declined it and became a civil pilot instead. I never thought I'd fly Concorde, in fact. The opportunity, I was, I was never expecting the opportunity to present itself, but it did later, and in fact I took part in the 25th anniversary of Concorde from Filton, which was the British uh, Aircraft Corporation headquarters, and I flew with Brian Trubshaw, who had been the test pilot on that very day in April 1969, and he sat on the jump seat and did the cabin address for us. And I will never forget some of the things he said on that day. He was a fantastic aircraft commentator himself. My name's John, John Ty, and I also grew up fairly close to Heathrow. I went to school at uh, Hampton Grammar, just uh, very close to the airport. In January 1976, 21st of January 1976, the first commercial flight of Concorde took off from Heathrow. And I was still at school then, just. Uh, but I went along. And uh, there I was clinging to the fence watching this, this aeroplane take off with 100 passengers for the very first time. Quite how I came to be at Heathrow at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning mm -hmm. instead of double geography, I'm not sure, but we'll gloss <laughs> over that bit. There were thousands of people there and if they'd bet me a million pounds that one day I'd end up flying that very aeroplane, I wouldn't have taken a bet. I would, have never, would never have believed I got to do it. But I left school in 76 as well, in the summer of 76. And I joined British Airways through an advert on the local radio station uh, as a clerk in the accounts department. It was meant to be a summer holiday job before going to university, but uh, 44 years later, I'm still there. And I went on to become an airline pilot and, and got the opportunity to fly a Concorde. It was just the best, uh, best years of my life. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it must be very poignant in some way, because I know that so many young people today are desperate to fly and have that passion which the three of you do have mm -hmm. and it is such a challenging world for them and in some ways I just thought listening to your stories and the positivity which the three of you exude might <laughs> help them give them some focus and I'm sure there will be opportunities <clears throat> going forward. If you've got a dream, if you've got a passion, work hard yeah. and, uh, and you can do it, you know, you can, no, you can you achieve must it. Do it. Mm. You must do it. You must do yeah. it, mustn't you? Yeah. Mm. So what was it like when you first took off on Concorde? 
First time I ever flew on Concorde, I was flying it myself. I was always rather hoping we'd have a chance to sit down the back and see what it was like. But no, the very first time I flew it was at Prestwick, and I think probably in common with my two colleagues. I'm sitting in this aeroplane with just about five other people on board, my own colleagues on the conversion course, one of whom was the chief test pilot of the Civil Aviation Authority. I had an instructor sitting alongside me in the right-hand seat. I'm sitting in the left-hand seat. We do a takeoff in this lightweight Concorde because it's got very little fuel on board and no passengers. And we're asked to climb to 1,500 feet, which is, oh, very little height, but it's the average circuit height. We took off with not only full power, but full afterburner thrust. So we've got all four engines operating at absolute maximum power. We've got flames streaming from the back of the aeroplane. We reached the rotation speed of about 180 miles an hour in no time at all. In fact, well under 30 seconds. We climbed at about 30 degrees nose up, which looks almost vertical. And I was asked to level at 1500 feet. Before I knew where I was, we were at 2,500 feet <laughs> and doing 250 knots, which is about 280 miles an hour. But I had by, managed to at least turn down wind. And of course, my colleagues are laughing. They're laughing out loud. And unbeknown to me, the instructors used to have a sweepstake on how fast we would go and how low we would be able, or how high we would go in the initial leveling off. And it was the best way to learn. I have to say the airspace around us was completely uncrowded. So what we did was perfectly safe, but it was the best way to learn was to go right in at the deep end never forgotten it and i remember the the sweepstake to which you refer oh. they, uh, <laughs> i didn't they, know uh, about it <laughs> by the time i went uh, towards the end uh, i think the target was to level off at 2000 feet and uh, i was told the record the greatest altitude reached uh, by a novice concord pilot in his attempt to stop at 2000 feet was 7,200. <laughs> oh, you didn't dare touch anything very much. You know, you really wanted to throttle the engines back like that. And you thought, well, if I do that, how do I know they're going to perform? You know, are they going to be able to decelerate properly? Um, after all, by then, certainly in my case, I had some 40 years experience. So it wasn't as though I was a, a complete novice, but you were terrified of doing the wrong thing. And this, this, and also you're handling this, this Rolls-Royce of the air. And of course you are sitting on the Rolls-Royce aeroplane powered by Rolls-Royce engines. And it is such a privilege just to sit there, let alone to fly the thing. Well, we sorted ourselves And then what out. was it like when you first went supersonic? I mean, what was that feeling like? Did you really notice it or was that more noticed by those on the ground with the bang? Well, I hope they didn't hear the bang because it just, uh, again, the first time I ever went supersonic was with 100 passengers on board. In fact, a member of our close royal family sitting down the bag as a passenger, which again sort of made me just that little bit more tense. And it was a New York flight with passengers on board. And the first time we went supersonic was a complete non-event because Concorde is so brilliant at going supersonic none of this I was brought up on the film Sound Barrier and 1952 film wonderful David Lean film which showed tremendous vibration as as pilots went through the shock waves associated with supersonic flight or transonic flight none of that on Concorde but I shall never forget part way through the flight we've been in the air about two hours by now and we're going along at twice the speed of sound and we're some 55,000 feet or more, perhaps two thirds away across the Atlantic, and passengers were coming in and out of the cockpit as they did in those days. And one of them said, 
this is my 255th crossing on Concord and I am not doing it anymore. I have started a merchant bank in the city of London, he was an American, and I'm going home, I'm going home to a party that I'm not supposed to know about, but this I am never going to fly on Concord ever again and I've done 255 crossings. You must by now be also very experienced. How many transatlantic crossings have you done? And I didn't have the heart to say it was my first That's ever one. <laughs> I, I just thought I won't spoil his day. So I said, oh, I had done some transatlantic flying before, but this was actually one of my early Concorde flights, oh, which Concord. was perfectly true. <laughs> <laughs> Skated round it. So why does Concorde then have a droopy nose at the front? John? When you're coming into land, the aeroplane's very nose high. Uh, the nose sticks up at, uh, or the attitude of the aeroplanes, we call it, it's 10 and a half degrees nose up. So with the nose sticking out the front of the aeroplane, we just simply wouldn't be able to see the runway. So the nose goes down to its fully down position for landing, which is 12 and a half degrees. 12 and a half minus the 10 and a half gives us a two degree slope so we can see the runway. We have it down for takeoff, but not um, as an intermediary uh, stage, which is just five degrees down and the visor down so we can see that. But yeah, all the way down to 12 and a half for landing. And then after takeoff, we raise the nose and the visor as we accelerate through 250 miles an hour or so. And it just goes virtually silent. Oh, we, we can't wait to get the nose and the visor up because you can then hear each other speak because yeah. it is a little bit bumpy with the nose and visor down. But in the United States, we were expected to keep it down to oh, 10,000 feet because in the United States, as in many other parts of the world, you have to be able to look out. You have to be able to look for other aircraft. Uh, we didn't have the radar coverage that we take for granted in Europe where we're being well and truly looked after. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, how interesting. Wasn't it true that the uh, originally they were going to make the visor out of metal and not have glass up there? The original prototype, the technology for the glass wasn't sufficient to have a glass oh, visor. Okay. Yeah. And if you look at the prototype at, at Yeovilton, it's just got a little slot. <laughs> and when the, the, they first flew it, uh, Brian Trubshaw said it's like flying a supersonic letterbox. <laughs> but then as the, uh, you know, it's such a long test program, six years, by the time they got to producing the production ones, the technology had got uh, improved so that they could get the glass um, okay. visors. And you can see out. And of course, when you're up at... 50-odd thousand feet, maximum 60,000 feet with passengers, you can definitely see the curvature of the Earth. Mm. And uh, one of the most incredible, the uh, horizon's about 300 miles away, and you can definitely see, I mean, you can see the curvature of the Earth sitting on the beach when a boat comes over the horizon. But yeah. in Concord, it is very, very pronounced. Yeah. And also, coming back towards the UK on the late flight, you flew into the darkness. So we were up, the sun was setting behind us at three times its normal rate, and it got dark pretty quick. You could see the night time coming. And it, it went three or four minutes, and you were flying in the twilight zone, and then the complete darkness. Yeah. Well, going the other way, of course, in the spring and the autumn, that was an incredible experience because we'd leave Heathrow on the early evening flight about seven o'clock and it was dark and then uh, you'd head across to New York and you're going faster than the earth was rotating twice the speed of sound 1350 miles an hour remember and 
it would get light again. You'd see the sunrise mm-hmm. in the west. Mm-hmm. On the Washington service, and then we used to go down to, down Miami. to Miami. We'd yeah. get two, we'd get <clears throat> well, two, I, two I, sunsets. I actually got up in the morning and watched the sunrise, drove to Heathrow and watched the sunset. Halfway across the Atlantic, the sun came up. As we went into Washington, it went down again. We had an hour on the ground in Washington. We then did that little subsonic section down to top of Florida. It came up again. Then we hit the burners and went up the 60,000 feet. It came up for a fourth time. And as we went into Miami, (laughs) it went down for the fourth time. So without actually going into orbit, I think that was probably a record. It just depended on the time of year. It was around November time when the... (laughs) So were you all mainly doing the transatlantic flight or did you... Well, you flew from Egypt, didn't you? They had lots of charters on the Mm. the Concorde, besides the scheduled services. Going down to Cairo was one of the um, quite popular charters. And then we also did them with, in association with Cunard with the QE2. So the passengers would go out on the QE2 or vice versa and back on the Concorde. They actually had a, a system where we could go on the QE2 and do some lectures, which was rather nice. And there's 500 people in the QE2 cinema. And they stand up and uh, you have your uniform on. And the way to get hold of the audience is, I, I always used to say, um, has anyone flown supersonic? And no one put their hand up. And I'd say, who's, who's going to be flying supersonic next week? And they'd all put their yeah, hand really, up. Yeah. So you had them then, you know. Yeah. It was quite, quite something. The interest was, was tremendous. And on one particular trip that I did on the Q2, the captain said, um, I've got this little VHF radio that I bought. Is it possible to talk to the Concorde as they go over? Because the actual tracks were very similar. Great, great circle track from the channel over to Long Island. I said, well, I can arrange that, you know, no problem. Can I use your radio room? And I went to the radio room on the Q2 and I rang the Ops Queen's Building, as it was then, when I knew the Concorde crew were going to be checking in. And it was Colin Morris, the captain. And I said, oh, hello, Colin, it's um, Steve. He said, where are you? I said, about uh, 27 West on the Q2. <laughs> and I said, it's a beautiful day. Captain would like to try and talk to you as you go over the top because it's the same route. We arranged it and we were listening out on 1318 when I thought the time had come. He got the whole passenger list on the Q2. They all came out on deck. We saw it come over the horizon and it was moving so quick. Mm. It was up at 55,000 feet. I hadn't really heard the boom before because we were only allowed to break the sound barrier over the sea. And so I said to the crew, we were talking, what I'm going to do is I'll keep the transmit button pressed down so that you can hear your own sonic boom. And as they went past, they went quite a long way down range and then we got this double whack of a sonic boom and they heard it in the cockpit so that was quite a <laughs> quite a first quite really. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> can I ask do you know I mean how did Concord come about was it the Rolls Royce making the engines or was it an endeavor or what was the there initial... was a, there was a supersonic yeah, committee yeah. sat in 1956 right. in in the UK very forward-looking, he, um, headed by Dr. Morian Morgan, who was a Farnborough scientist. They put a lot of thoughts together, other people got involved, and there were regular meetings from just after 1956. Certainly, there was quite a lot of talk going on in 1958. 
and the British were putting together their proposals, there was already a wing-shaped design which was favoured by a former German scientist who'd come over to Britain after the end of World War II, who'd been made very welcome by the British. Eric Brown, the famous test pilot, who's only recently passed away, nearly 100 years age, of age, was much involved with this, this gentleman. They were at time even throwing aeroplanes rather like paper darts off buildings at Farnborough, but at the same time this project looked as though it was going to be extraordinarily expensive, as inevitably it turned out to be, perhaps quite difficult. At the same time it was found out that the French were putting together some thoughts of their own. They developed a wonderful twin-engined airliner called the Caravelle at Sud Aviation, which was itself in Toulouse. And they were putting together a super Caravelle, which was going to be a smaller version of the plane that the British were looking at, and not fully transatlantic, but it was going to be quite fast. It was going to be supersonic. About 1962, it was decided it was better that we merge our efforts with the French, because yeah. that way we could perhaps better afford it. An accord was signed, and I remember Julian Amory, who was an MP at the time, now lately passed away, but Julian Amory, who was a local MP to where I lived, in fact, and I remember flying with him once, and he reminded me of this, that they'd sat down and signed this accord. I think it was in 1962, and from then on, we worked together with the French, and the project was shared, bits were handed over to the French design authority, was handed over to the French, some was taken by the British, and of course Rolls-Royce, as you rightly said, Lady Carnarvon, was very much involved right from the start, because they had developed the Olympus engine. Originally it was a Bristol design, but taken over by Rolls-Royce, and it brought to fruition the aircraft that, that we know of as, as Concorde. It was incredible technology. When you take, uh, when you think we didn't have colour, well, we just about got colour television. We certainly didn't have calculators and mobile phones that the youngsters take for granted nowadays. It was all designed by men sitting at drawing boards, and it was just it's extraordinary, wasn't it? Absolutely incredible. Funny enough, Charles Rolls came and stayed here wow. at the castle actually, and he died very young. And obviously, Geoffrey de Havilland yeah. took off and made one of the first flights from here. And I've just um, interviewed Robert Harris, who's written a book, V2, which is very much that supersonic engineering skill set and some of the German scientists who I think were horrified that their knowledge was being put to a destructive bent rather than a positive mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. were some of the ones who I think mm-hmm. came mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. to work mm-hmm. on supersonic mm-hmm. projects mm-hmm. after World War Two. Mm-hmm. So his book's very interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. looking at science and it's actually in that case it's perverted mm. use but mm. this is such a very strong and amazing use and it's just the best of British yeah, isn't it it's exactly, well. that's exactly so exciting yeah, yeah. it really the, was um, the Americans put a man on the moon in uh, July 1969 mm. and Concord as we've discussed first flew in March 69 so it was an incredible year but the Americans have um, actually apparently said the guys at NASA have actually said that they believe what we did with Concord was a greater technical achievement than their moon landings it really was something quite incredible. I went to Duxford with Steve. We were actually filming about the B-17, one of oh, which yeah. crashed here. And it was a very moving day, but what was enormous fun was we nipped along to see Concord naturally and went up in there and then Steve naturally blacked his way in. So we were sitting in the cockpit of Federal. It was, an ex- it was extraordinary. I felt yeah. really privileged. Lady Glavin was in the captain's seat. Of course. Was I? I, was <laughs> I think I was just waving out the window. I think. <laughs> that very aeroplane was the one in which 
Brian Trubshaw had to do the high angle of attack trials. This is where they were simulating the possibility of a high angle of attack which would cause the aircraft to stall and the scientists, aerodynamicists, were saying the aircraft cannot stall, it will not stall, but inevitably we had to prove that an enormous number of devices, five separate devices, were built into the aircraft to prevent us getting the nose too high so that we would never enter this particular regime of flight. But unfortunately, the test pilots had to test it. Brian Trubshaw told me, I used to meet him occasionally, when they started doing the high angle of attack trials, they were all called in together and they were told, look, this is actually potentially dangerous, so we're going to modify the aeroplane um, to make sure there's a form of escape for you, a form of like air stairs down the back of the aeroplane, and this was done with the one at, at, um, at Duxford. If there is any risk of you, your, your life is at risk, then those of you on board are going to get out of the aeroplane by going down the fuselage, <laughs> collect, collecting a parachute which you're going to put on as you go, and then you dive through this hole at the back of the aircraft and that will save your lives. Trubby, who we, as he was known, reminded us that they were wearing a thing like a spacesuit with a helmet on as well. The cockpit is quite narrow, as you must yes. know, and to get out of this aircraft <laughs> and then get rid of some of their spacesuit stuff, put on this parachute, then work their way down the back of the fuselage all the time whilst the aircraft is probably spinning at high angle of attack with high G at some astronomical altitude and then dive out to save their lives was really more risky perhaps than the actual um, <laughs> testing they were going to do. And so he said, and Trubby, and, and if you'd met the man, you would know this. He was sort of rather like a trade union representative amongst the... You know, he was a wonderful man who did not suffer fools, and he knew exactly what he was doing. And he said, would you go away for a moment? So he asked the gentleman who ran the flight test operation to go away, and the five of them that were involved in the British side of the programme sat down and chatted to it. And one of the things they did was to phone their wives. They all phoned their wives and said, there's this, this thing we're going to be apparently going to be doing. And so after 10 or 15 minutes, the head of flight test was called in. Uh, Chubby said, I'll act as spokesman here. He said, we've all of us spoken to our wives. How much is this going to cost? And it was told, they were told it would cost about five million pounds to put this aircraft modification in. Chubby said, thought so. And that today would be 25 million pounds, yes. something like that. And he said, well, we thought that. So he said, we've all discussed it with our wives and we've decided that if you just give us five million pounds each, <laughs> you can forget all the modifications. <laughs> without them. And of course they weren't necessary. Um, the aeroplane turned out to be quite benign. Um, I did once try and stall the simulator with the chief test pilot of the CAA with whom I did the conversion course and we got up to an astonishingly high angle of attack in the simulator and it just flipped over on its back mm. and that's exactly what he expected it to do. Now this was a simulator of course not the real aeroplane. So where was the plane actually built? Where was it assembled? All the aircraft were built in the two factories, in Toulouse in France and, and Filton, although much of the subcontracting was done. Almost every British sophisticated engineering company had some input into making right. Concorde, but all the aircraft were assembled again at either Toulouse or at Filton. However, all the aircraft were made of parts made in both countries. It really was a remarkable oh, effort. And the British half of the fuselage was built using a certain technique. The French half was built using a slightly different technique. And I know from speaking to the people that were around at the time that when the two halves met each other, there was this great joy 
and delight that they did literally fit because of course the French were using metric measurements <laughs> we were using we were using not only imperial i.e. British measurements but we were also using the American measurements which are based wow. on imperial and so there were really effectively three different types of measurements but the parts all fitted quite perfectly but in fact where the two fuselage halves joined there was a very slight extra stress area and eventually we had to put a butt strap over the join in the two fuselages which is still there to this day on all, all the aircraft you see in the museum. The aeroplane was remarkably free of any engineering difficulties. I was just going to add to what Terence said that a lot of it was actually built at Brooklands in yes. Weybridge which yes. is uh, yes. just one of the most fantastic places in the country. About a third country. of each Concorde I believe was built at Brooklands yeah, and then first, run by uh, road to Filton yeah. or, or, or to Toulouse. And that's where the simulator is now. There's only one simulator. The French had one, we had one. Their simulator I don't think is serviceable. I think it's in a museum now. Is it? but, it's not, it's not but the one that we have in Britain uh, was taken from Filton down to Brooklands and they've done an amazing job yeah. getting it working again and uh, we're all checked out on the Concorde simulator. Didn't you take some of the red arrows there? We did. You yeah. did, didn't you? Yeah, they, uh, <laughs> they we should take the, the shuttle, we should take the space shuttle guys on it. Oh, yeah. oh, oh The red arrows well, They funny. loved it, they used to practice on it. They rang up and said, we're doing a show and we're all landing at Farnborough, which is only just down the road from Brooklands, this afternoon and we're staying in the hotel. Is there any chance of having a go on the simulator? So there was a phone call saying, can you come and give the Red Arrows a ride in the sim? So I think there were three of us. We all had three each. My chaps, I mean, they were fantastically natural pilots. I set my guy in and we, we went down round London, south of London, over Canary Wharf. And then we went down the river and flew over, or under actually, Tower Bridge. <laughs> And then, and then uh, we pulled up over the uh, Charing Cross Railway Station and that lines you up with a mall. And this chap was just really coping very well. And I said to him, I suppose you've done this quite a lot, flying down the mall and over the palace. And he said, well, I've done it three times, actually, but I've never seen the palace because he's looking at the red arrow yes, next to his. Next to me. And I said, well, there it is down there. And we went, whoosh, <laughs> over the palace. Yeah. They really appreciated having a go. Yeah. What was quite funny was that a lot of them hadn't actually been supersonic. So they might have been in a typhoon or a tornado. But, of course, those, those the fast jet fighters can only maintain supersonic speeds for just a few minutes really mm. and we used to do it for three hours every time we went up <laughs> so, um, well, there's only one photograph isn't there of Concorde flying supersonically mm. it's often described as the only photograph of it flying at Mach 2 I think it's not actually doing at Mach 2 but there was a small window of opportunity with an RAF tornado that formated alongside Concorde uh, going up the North Sea I think John Eames was the captain and John tells the story how tornado said right I'm in position uh, we're ready ready to take the pictures and John said right okay I'm going to go supersonic now then we're going to put the afterburners on and I'm going to accelerate and climb 
the uh, tornado pilot said accelerate and climb well we could do one or the other <laughs> not both <laughs> and I think they, they literally managed to had about a three minute window of opportunity to you get you can tell it was supersonic by the position of the buckets on the back of the engine yeah, the so yeah. when yeah so they had the buckets had to be in a certain position mm-hmm. so you could light the afterburners go through, through the sound it's the only real photograph that actually flies mm-hmm. supersonically mm-hmm. how extraordinary yeah. what amazing memories you've mm-hmm. all got mm-hmm. is there is there something which another memory you want to share John I mean there's well, so yeah, many stories I, 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 I could talk all day but yeah. I was very privileged to be there towards the end these gentlemen were, were, had, you know I didn't do round the world charters but every flight for me was, was special Sadly, Concorde came to an end, and the dreadful accident was on the 22nd of July 2000. We carried on flying for a few weeks, and on August the 15th, 2000, we were just pushing back from the gate to go to New York, and we got a call from air traffic control to say, come back. Uh, we knew there was nothing wrong with the aeroplane, so we didn't know why we were being called back to the gate. And we opened the door, and we were. I said um, to the lady that opened the door, I said, uh, why are we being called back? And she said, we thought you knew that. And that's when we were grounded. And the reason I remember that day was because that was my last ever flight, even though we didn't actually fly. My last ever operation on Concorde. Stepped off and never went back. But it was very poignant because one of my passengers that day, I'll never forget her, was an elderly French lady. And she was part of a tour group going to New York. The rest of her group were flying subsonic from France, but she wanted to fly Concorde. And she'd made her way to London on her own to take that Concorde flight. And I felt very sorry for her because she stepped off and she probably never got her supersonic mm. experience. Mm. Why so, were you grounded at that specific Because point? That, then they decided, to, uh, they'd ascertain what actually caused the accident. Right. And that, that chain of events was such that the Civil Aviation Authority, quite rightly, had decided we had to break that chain. We had to modify the aeroplanes. So the aeroplanes were taken out of service that day and the next year was spent modifying them. The accident was caused by a piece of metal that was upside down on the runway, a piece of titanium that had fallen off a, a DC-10 that had just taken off before the Air France aeroplane. It burst the tyre. The tyre burst into, uh, exploded into very large pieces and a piece came up and hit the underside of the wing. Further down the wing, a piece was blown out, massive fuel leak, fuel went over the uh, undercarriage, and the wiring around the undercarriage had been damaged, mm. and the sparks there uh, set fire to the fuel. And, and the rest is, as we know, all about. So there's a chain of events there. We had to break that chain such that that could never happen again. So the aeroplane was taken out of service, New tyres were designed so that they couldn't explode into large pieces. If we ever had a tyre burst again, it would just be small fragments that wouldn't do much damage. The wiring is modified and armour-plated so that it could never cause those sparks again. And indeed, a modification such that they they were depowered as well. Kevlar linings were put in the fuel tanks so that if ever a fuel tank punctured, that we wouldn't get this massive leak. Every event that caused that accident yes. was taken out of the equation so it could never happen again. And we went back into service. We were all set for another 10 years of operation. People think the accident was the end of Concorde. Mm. It wasn't. We were all set for at least another 10 years of operation. As well as doing those modifications, we put in new toilets, we put in new leather seats, we bought new catering equipment. We were, we were going for another 10 years. Then 9-11 happened, and that's what really finished Concorde. We all remember people stopped flying, business around the world collapsed, aviation was particularly badly hit. We did carry on for a while, initially the loads were, were, were good, but when 9-11 happened, 
I remember phoning up one day when he had three passengers on the evening flight. Got wow. was unsustainable. Oh. So the dreadful. I had a cup. We, <laughs> oh, yeah, we rarely had three empty seats. Yeah. Oh. When it was announced yeah. that we were going to stop, mm. I think they gave six months' notice, mm. and you couldn't get a seat for love and money. They've all sold yeah. out mm. then. But uh, mm. you only realise what you are losing when it's gone. Mm. Yeah, it? so Abs- sad. the most extraordinary. I know my father flew Concorde, but uh, he used to go to New York sometimes, and yeah. and a few other people I know. But the nearest I got, but it was still an experience, was sitting in the cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> being bossed around by uh, Steve and waving out. Oh, he's not bossy, he's not bossy. It was, a, it was a fantastic business tool. We've spoken about yeah. the business of men and women that flew mm. across the Atlantic. Mm. They mm. could leave London in the morning, go to New York, buy a company or whatever they do, have lunch and come home again in a day. It was absolutely mm. fantastic. Mm. And 80% of our passengers were business executives. Another 10% were people fulfilling a lifelong dream, dream. perhaps a, you know, a special mm. wedding anniversary. And then the final 10% were the, the rich and the famous, the Paul McCartneys and the, and the Mick Jaggers, who were always good fun. Did it me. use a huge amount of fuel? Yes, it yeah. did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much the same as a 747. But pretty much the same as a 747. I mean, per, per passenger, per mile, it worked out about the same, actually, mm. as a 747. Yeah. It wasn't as outrageously uneconomic as people say. In actual fact, the faster it went, the, the, the more economical it became. Yeah. It was the only aeroplane I've ever known and ever flown which actually burnt less fuel the faster you went mm. um, because of the unique design of the air intakes, which has now been copied by everybody all over the world. Quite brilliant. There were three brilliant things at Concorde. One was the wing shape. Another one was the fuel balancing, the way the fuel, the, the centre of gravity of the aeroplane was modified by moving the fuel around. There were 13 fuel tanks, and those fuel tanks were managed in a brilliant way. And they were even managed all the more brilliantly because if all the power supplies had failed, the fuel still worked in a way. The fuel by gravity alone would work into the right fuel tank so that by the time you landed the aeroplane it was safe to land and the third brilliant thing was the air intakes the Rolls-Royce designed air intakes which were utterly brilliant and now virtually every military aeroplane that flies more than Mm. the speed of sound has intakes that were based on the Concorde design. Going back to the fuel tanks I remember uh, I knew that the ground school was going to be a real tough you know training course I turned up on day one and the instructor said, uh, right, it's going to be hard work, chaps. You've got six weeks ahead of you. We'll start with an overview of the fuel system. Concorde's got 13 fuel tanks and they're numbered 1 to 11. <laughs> that doesn't help. I nearly <laughs> left at that point. But, uh, there's a 5A and a 7A. It's true, it's true. It is true. I, I, we used to have lunch at Filton every day. We were taken into the executive area of the, of the dining room at Filton, which I thought was a shame. I would love to have had lunch with all the other people that were there working at Filton on all sorts of projects. We were there one day, all in our little private area, and we heard applause breaking out from another room, from the main uh, dining room, and it turned out the chap who designed the fuel system, who was long retired, had come in to see somebody, and everybody stood up and applauded. There were hundreds of them there, because he was such a character, and he had designed this fuel system, and the fuel rig that they used for Concorde is still to this day, I believe, used for the Airbus wing designs, which were made, most of which were designed at Filton. Many of them are now built up at Broughton in near Chester. And the fuel design, the system design on all the Airbus aeroplanes, which is at the moment the world's most successful 
airliner was based on this same filter design. Oh, amazing. Mm. Can you say what, what was the yes. best moment? Yes. Well, the best moment, the one that I remember, was flying with Captain Jerry Rendell, and we took off on 3-1 left at New York, which was the long way round, really. If we'd taken off on runway 2-2, we'd have saved a couple of minutes. And then we got um, <laughs> clearance through the um, danger areas off Nantucket, so we saved another couple of minutes. And then we got up towards 50,000 feet and just about to hit Mach 2. And the jet stream at that time of year had actually gone right up into the, almost, to the stratosphere. So what time of year was this then? This was uh, November time. November, OK. At 50,000 feet, we were doing Mach 2, but we still had a 200-knot tailwind. Wow. And the, the ground speed, we had a little gizmo in the cockpit which converted knots into miles, miles an, hour. an hour, which then was put up on a display in the cabin so that the passengers could see how fast we were going. And it was reading 1,480 miles an hour. And we thought, we've got to get it to 1,500. <laughs> <laughs> Boys and their toys, yeah. and we couldn't quite get 1500. But then we worked it out that if we did a, a straight in approach at Heathrow and landed towards the east, we were going to get pretty close to three hours. And at the edge, we told air traffic that we, uh, we might have been on for a record, and they, they cleared us straight in to, to Heathrow on uh, nine right. We said, if, if we don't make any noise over the castle, would that be OK? And, they, and we kept speed up. And we landed, and the time from takeoff at New York to landing at Heathrow was 2 hours 57 minutes. Wow. wow and incredible. there's only a few crews that have done mm. less than three hours. So yeah. that was one of my... How that's incredible. The record is 2 hours 52 minutes and 59 seconds, yeah, isn't it? It's yeah. incredible. It's got... Yeah. How extraordinary. I too, towards the end of my time on the aeroplane, the co-pilot was flying it. We were in New York. It was a similar situation to the one Steve's described. And... I was taking a sort of passive interest in what the co-pilot was doing at the flight planning stage. He nudged me and he said, the record's on today. And I thought, oh, well, good. So I had a closer look at it. And sure enough, the basic flight time was something like two hours 50 because we had one of these obscure jet streams. I was aware that the rules were that if you wanted to break a world record, you had to announce it in advance. You couldn't just do a fast flight and say, oh, by the way, we've just flown it in such and such a time. So our colleagues in New York, the Americans in New York, and this was Joe Zavaroni at the time, who was the boss there, he said, oh, I'll put all that in motion. So he phoned uh, the various bodies, which includes the FAI, the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale. They, they got to know about it. So they know that we are planning to break the world record across the Atlantic. Wow, you know, this is all great fun. So we go out there, we tell the cabin crew, I tell the passengers, by the way, we're going to have a go at the world record, and it's, it's two hours 52. The Americans, most of the passengers on board were Americans, they love this, they like to be involved. They know they're now taking part in a world record attempt. So as far as everyone, as far as the Americans on board, and in fact all the passengers on board are concerned, they are part of this attempt, even though they're sitting there drinking the best wine and, uh, and, and so on, and <laughs> champagne, I beg your pardon, as well. As soon as we got it, oh, we, we were taxiing out at uh, Kennedy, and air traffic said, you're going for the record then. Roger, yes, uh, yes, that's right, thank you. Okay, uh, route direct to so-and-so. We've not even got airborne yet, and he's already given us a direct routing. Um, and so we went through that same danger area that, that Steve, Steve mentioned, which was, as they call it, cold. It was an area they used for military flying. 
but it was often not used, so if it was cold, you could fly through it, so I went through that. And then we got onto one of the oceanic controls at, at Gander, and they said, how are you doing on the record? And, uh, oh, well, we seem to be a few minutes ahead. You know, we already know what we've got to achieve, and we're a few minutes fast. We then get onto the next control, and they, uh, would you like to route direct to so-and-so, just to help you with the record? And I'm telling the passengers, by the way, we're about five minutes up on the world record, at least at this stage, and we're motoring along. And then we get to Shanwick, which is a sort of an abbreviation of Shannon and Prestwick, and it's always an Irish controller. How are you guys doing? And, um, well, we seem to be ahead of the record. Oh, we route direct to so-and-so, keep your speed up, you know, don't worry about that, this, that, and the other, the next thing. Coming into London, London Air Traffic said, we understand this is a record attempt, you know, we understand this is a record attempt. None of this encouragement, but we understand it's a record attempt. We said, yes, we'd like to delay our deceleration, because in the winter, we used to decelerate, do you remember, slightly earlier, mm. because mm. the sonic boom uh, uh, used to go up into the ionosphere as well, and it used wow. to be carried along by the ionosphere, and you would sometimes get a, a, a reflected boom, yeah. it was Secondary a secondary boom, boom. you get a rumble, rumble. And people in Wales used to talk about it sometimes and it wasn't the real sonic boom it was used to go out take off didn't they and windows would rattle but it wasn't the primary boom uh, for that reason we would decelerate um, sooner in the winter but we were told that we could use the summer deceleration because that was the legal figure so we did that and we are now going really well. My first officer is working very hard at flying the aeroplane. I'm just doing the radio and keeping in touch with everybody. Passengers are all informed. We're well ahead of the schedule. London had very, very strong westerly winds blowing, which is one reason why we had these very high upper winds, extremely strong westerly winds, like 30 or 40 knots, 40, 55 miles an hour. Yeah. As we got onto the London area, the very first thing, the chap said to me was, reduce your speed immediately to such and such a speed, which was ludicrously slow. And I said, oh, we are attempting a world record. And he said, I don't care, reduce to such and such a speed. When you get to Ockham, enter the hold. Delay will be 10 or 15 minutes. Ockham is near Wisley. But we did actually pass Heathrow, a beam Heathrow, in two the hours 45, <laughs> two hours 45, uh, even with reduced speed. And of course, by the time we landed, it was well over three hours because we held for 10 or 15 yeah, minutes. No, 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 no. But it was, um, nonetheless, it was, it was a very Amazing. exciting event. I think we've all probably got stories like that because on the round the world trips, you did flights that had never been achieved before yeah. by a supersonic aeroplane. So everywhere you went, you set a new world record. So it wasn't unusual to have a number of world records, if you like, in your logbook. I've so enjoyed listening. It's been too short a time today, but this is such a feat of British engineering. and something mm. so to look, to look up to and think of what was achieved. Yeah. And it was an Anglo-French feat of engineering, yeah. which is so important. And I so wish we were... Pursuing a similar project today, wouldn't it be amazing? But thank you so much for coming. It's been such a joy. And I hope you'll all come and have lunch with me when we're allowed to sit a little bit closer than two metres apart. <laughs> but, but that would be really nice. Thank you very, very Hello. much well, to it's a pleasure. the thank three, you for John, Terence and Steve. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Happy memories. just to say please do subscribe to this podcast then you can be first on the list every time it comes out